Good morning, King's Cross. It's good to be with you. If you're a visitor, if it's your first time with us, we're glad you're here. Uh, grateful that you've come to worship Christ with us, or perhaps you're not a Christian and uh, you don't know what you think about Christianity or the gospel of Christ. If that's you, we also just say welcome to you. We're glad you're here. It's a good and safe place for you to be as you consider and think on eternal things uh, and, and what God has to say uh, and the, the message of Christ himself. So whoever you are, however you got here, uh, whatever circumstances you come in, whatever burdens you're carrying, know that we're happy and glad that you're here, and uh, it's a privilege and joy to have you join us uh, in worship. I love team sports. Anybody who knows me knows in general I love sports. But I love team sports. I love watching them. I especially love coaching and watching my children play in team sports, even when that's first and second grade flag football and it's utter chaos and I end the game soaking wet with sweat, nearly having had several heart attacks. I still love it. I love watching and being a part of team sports. I've done that as a chaplain at Page High School and at Wingate University uh, as well. I love being on the sidelines and seeing a team and being a part of team. I love watching uh, underdogs like the Miami Heat make it to the finals with a bunch of undrafted free agents. Looks like it's probably going to end. The run is coming to an end. But it's been incredible to watch a run of those who weren't supposed to even get in the tournament make it all the way to the final. I just love team sports. I love it when there's a Cinderella run. I even love watching El Clasico here at King's Cross. Even though I don't really like soccer that much, I love watching El Clasico. Now, I am a little offended, I have to admit, that I wasn't invited to play or participate in El Clasico at all. A number of people asked me yesterday, hey, why are you not playing? I wasn't invited. Now, listen, I'm not invited that I wasn't actually asked to play because I'm not very good at soccer. So that was wise uh, by those running the event. I am, though, a little offended that I wasn't asked to coach. You might wonder why. Well, I have a perfect coaching record in soccer. So one time I had to fill in for my daughter's team. The coaches were out of town. I got a little bit of help to come with me, and we won that one game. So I have a perfect record as a soccer coach, 1-0, undefeated, and I've retired and I'm done. I'm a perfect coach in that way, and I wasn't asked to coach yesterday, so I'm a, a little offended by that. But seriously, I love underdogs. I love players. I love role players. I love team chemistry and how every team develops a different kind of chemistry. I love watching athletes on teams respond to adversity and grow and develop. I love them learn, uh, watch and learn how to celebrate one another and to play the individual roles. I love it when a team sacrificially is committed together to a greater goal than just an individual can accomplish. My plan growing up was to be a coach. God had other plans clearly. But much of what I do and think about in life and ministry, particularly even as a pastor, I think about like a coach. So I love teams. And there's no team. Even currently, I love more than playing and serving in this one. Being able to be a part of this church and see what God is doing with individuals that make up a united body on a mission together. This morning, if God gives the grace, we're going to finish our study in Exodus. This is the 35th sermon in Exodus. My plan is to quickly summarize the narrative and show you how God called a group of people, a team, if you will, to unite together in one common mission. And I hope that as we do that, uh, the second half, you'll consider your role on that team and even how faithfully you're playing the role God has called you to play on that team. And then we'll conclude with just a few thoughts uh, as, uh, as our kind of church, this smaller team within the team, the kingdom of God, uh, some, some, some things we are asking and trusting God to do. But in the midst of all of that, I want you to understand and see God has called us all to individual roles, to, and he's given us gifts to use for the good of the team and the glory of God. This is what the church is about. 
God has equipped you. He's given you gifts and skills and talents and placed you on the team for the good of the team and the glory of God. So again, the question is, are you playing those roles? Are you using your individual talents and treasures to be used as a corporate witness in worship for the Lord Jesus? We are, if you will, the redeemed team. So Jordan and the early Olympic basketball team was the dream team. Uh, as the people of God, each church is a, a small microcosm, a redeemed team. And so let me pray and ask God's, for God's help as we consider our purpose together as one united body. Father, we come to you through Christ, our victorious Lord, the one who indeed has purchased and bought us with his very own blood and placed us among your people, that we might have you as Father. Jesus, our Lord, is our elder brother who purchased us, lived for us, died for us, rose for us, is interceding for us, who will return for us, who is currently preparing a place for us, and by the power of the Spirit, the one who indwells us, guiding us into truth. Even as right now we ask, Holy Spirit, guide us into the truth. Help us understand the purpose and mission you have for the church and help us in our individual roles to live that out for your great glory and the eternal good of all your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Two major points, a few applications kind of in a third point. Uh, and I want you to know in the first point, I intend to uh, preach to you about 40 chapters. I said 40. In the second point, six chapters. <clears throat> so we'll see how this goes. I told my wife, she said, that should be interesting. I said, or really boring, depending on how it goes. Hopefully we can do it in a way that is interesting. This first point, the ultimate purpose of God's people, the glory of God. The ultimate purpose of God's people, the glory of God. And I just want to summarize where we've been in the book of Exodus. And what's the whole point of the book? What is the, the very purpose and point of all that we've seen in the book of Exodus? Consider our journey through three major sections in this book. First chapters 1 to 18 that we entitled Rescued from Slavery. We looked at that from January to August of last year. Then chapters 19 to 24, Rescued to New Life, ex, um, that we looked at from January to April of this year. And then finally, Rescued for Worship, chapters 25 to 40, that we've been in uh, from the end of April until now. But in the midst of all of this, the main point, God's glory with and through his rescued people. That's been the point of this book, that God will get his glory through his rescued people. He's going to do that. He's going to do that as he gives his presence, which is his goodness and his character with those people. So God's presence, getting glory from his people, that's the point of every section of our study throughout this book. He rescued Israel from her bondage in Egypt for their good and for his glory. He rescued them into a new life, into the law of God, for their good and for his glory. And he rescued them for worship, that they might be a people that would proclaim the greatness of God for their good and for his glory. Our God makes himself known in his presence with his people and to the nations through his people. That's the point of this book. That God is going to gather a people and he's going to make himself known with his presence to them and then through them to the nations, he's going to reveal who he is. God's glory is the point. In his sovereign mercy, he's married his glory to his people's good. So we don't have to get worried about it when it's like, no, God's all about his glory. That's not good. No, no, no. He's all about his glory, and he's married him getting glory to him giving good to his people. Again, that's the point of this book. He is the God who gets glory by saving people. He is the God who gets glory by giving his gracious goodness to undeserving sinners. He is glorified through saving people like us. He drafts undeserving players to his eternal team, if you will, for the purpose of his eternal victory to the praise of his glorious name. Therefore, our job as his people is to glorify him as he's revealed himself in his word. We are to glorify God and enjoy him forever as the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins. 
Or we are to glorify God by enjoying him forever. As Piper spent his entire ministry, John Piper spent his entire ministry arguing. This is what we'll see in each section of Exodus. So if you want to flip through or just listen, we're going to walk through those three sections briefly together. First chapters 1 to 18. Rescued from slavery. Remember how Exodus opens up. Israel is in Egypt and there's a new Pharaoh that comes to power. He doesn't know Joseph. He doesn't know Israel. He's intimidated by the great numerical growth of Israel. He's concerned these people are going to raise up, they're going to form an army, and they're going to try to overthrow us. So therefore, then he orders, let's, he tells uh, the midwives to kill all the baby boys. Hey, kill all the baby boys so that they don't raise up and form an army to take over. Well, these midwives, Shipra and Pua, are great heroes who fear God more than man, refuse to do that. Pharaoh finds out, and then what does he do? He says, okay, fine, throw every male born to, to the Hebrews into the Nile River. All of them must be killed. So he tells everybody, kill all the baby boys so that we can make sure these people do not continue to grow and rise up over us. But Moses' mom forms a, a little plan, puts Moses in a basket, puts him in the Nile River and lets him go. And in God's sovereign providence, what happens? Pharaoh's daughter finds him. And decides with great compassion and mercy to raise him. She understands this is one of the Hebrew baby boys. She understands what's going on. She takes Moses and Moses is actually raised in Pharaoh's house. So Pharaoh wants all the baby boys killed. And then Moses, by God's sovereign providence, is raised in Pharaoh's house by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up and in the midst of his life, he begins to understand the, the complexity. He's watching as Pharaoh continues to make the slavery of, his, uh, of God's people worse. So it's a ruthless bondage that they're in. Moses sees it. He gets frustrated, and he jumps out in front of God's plans and says, you know what? I'm sick of this. And he strikes down and kills an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. Well, he finds out the next day that it comes to light, and so he's going to be in trouble. And so he flees to Midian. He goes off to Midian. He ends up getting married and having children and kind of just assuming, I don't, I don't know, I thought God was going to rescue. I thought God was going to do something. Who knows? He's there in God's faithfulness. Israel's suffering. And in serious need, we read in Exodus chapter 2, verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Friends, God knows our suffering intimately. Yahweh revealed himself then to the, as the great I am to Moses in the burning bush in chapter 3. And lets him, no, 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 I am who I am. I am the eternal God. There's, there's no competition with me. There's no rivals. There's no one that can rival me. And all these false gods in Egypt, they're nothing like me. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. Reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. And he tells in that interaction in Exodus 3, verse 7, The Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, to bring up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. He gave Moses great power and powerful signs to demonstrate that he was with them. Then he sent forth the ten plagues. To demonstrate his superiority over every false god in Egypt. So every single plague was highlighting a particular false god in Egypt that was worshipped. To let them know your gods, your false gods are nothing compared to Yahweh, the one true God. He, sent, he turned the Nile water into blood. The frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of the livestock, the boils, the hell, the locusts, the darkness, all in chapters 7 through 11. And that way he could demonstrate again, all of your false gods take the L when they run into Yahweh. 
Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and oscillated between saying, okay, okay, that's enough. I'll let the people go. And then deciding to harden his heart again and not let the people go. The final plague was the death blow, literally the death of the firstborn. Israel took the blood of a, a lamb and of a lamb sacrifice, put it over the doorpost. The death angel passed over and preserved. But in Egypt, all of the firstborn died. Finally, Egypt surrendered and sent Israel out with loads of silver and gold and jewelry and abundant clothing materials, which will be very significant later in the story. But after they get out and leave, Pharaoh and his army decide we're going after them. We're going to kill them in the wilderness. They get to the Red Sea. They're stuck. They're about to die. God parts the Red Sea. Israel crosses over the, the Red Sea. And then the, uh, Pharaoh's army comes after them. The waters crash in and destroy him. So the very place of grace and mercy and salvation for Israel is the wrath and justice of God upon the enemies of God in the Red Sea. Israel does what all saved people do on the other side of the Red Sea. They sing. Saved people sing. They worship with tambourines and loud noises. They celebrate God's faithfulness and kindness. Then they wander in the wilderness and murmur about going back to Egypt. <laughs> we as God's people can be so quickly forgetful of God's grace and kindness. We can go from singing in one moment to murmuring and saying, I just wish I could go back to the bondage I was in before. And yet God in his kindness provided water and manna miraculously demonstrating his great faithfulness to stubborn and forgetful people. Then they come to Mount Sinai where Moses first met Yahweh in the burning bush, but now to receive the law. But in this rescue, which is where all the drama is packed in in those first 18 chapters, in this rescue, the point is clear, the glory of Yahweh, the glory of God. Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7, he says clearly, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I shall take you to be my people. I will be your God. And what? You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of, under the burdens of the Egyptians. He saved Israel to make himself known. Or in other words, to bring himself glory. He says, I've redeemed you. I bought you. I'm going to bring you out of this so that you know who I am. I'm the one true God. I will get glory as the one true God because I am the one true God and I'm worthy of this glory. He also made it clear to Pharaoh, Exodus 9, 16, for this purpose I've raised you up to show you my power that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. It's for his glory that he rescued his people. He told his people, I'm letting you know who I am. That's why I'm rescuing you. He said, I'm raising up Pharaoh for this very point to conquer and, re and reveal who I am to get glory for my name. He made it clear that that's his very purpose in this victory with Israel. Exodus 12, 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. He will pursue them. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. So Israel, you will know, so I'm doing this to rescue you so that glory comes to me from you because I rescued you. But even Pharaoh and my enemies are going to know I am the one true God. He rescued them from slavery because and for his glory. But again, that's married to their good. They got rescued. So he rescued them for the glory of God and for their good. That's chapters 1 to 18, chapter 19 to 24. Why does he reveal this new life? So he rescued them from slavery, but he rescued them to a new life. So 19 to 24, he, he unveils, look, I'm giving you the Ten Commandments. I'm giving you this new way to live. You used to be in bondage. You used to be a slave. But now I'm showing you this new life. I rescued you that you might walk new. And here's the new way you're going to walk. And so he reveals this. So now you can be my people that reveal my glory. So again, he makes it clear. Exodus 19 verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. How I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. 
Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be to me a treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. He bought them and brought them to himself to live as his holy people among the nations for his glory. So he says, no, 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 I'm going to rescue you, and I'm not going to leave you in bondage. I'm going to rescue you to a new life so that people realize, wait, why are you so different? Oh, it's because you follow Yahweh. So he rescued them from slavery for his glory, and he rescued them to new life for his glory. And so verse, uh, chapter 20, we see the Ten Commandments revealed. And in chapters 21 to 24, we see the Book of the Covenant. That's application of those commandments to Israel's life together as a culture and a people. This new life. Yahweh rescued Israel to a new life of walking in his ways for his glory and their good. And then thirdly, chapters 25 to 40. They wouldn't just bring him glory by being witnesses. They would also reveal that they were his treasured people by having his holy presence dwelling with them. God's people are to bring him glory by bearing witness of God and also through beautiful worship of God. That's how we bring him glory. We bear witness to the truth of who he is and what he's done and how he's rescued us and how he gives us a new life. But we also bring glory to God by giving him the praise he's worthy of. So it's this new life, but it's also this new life of worship to the one who saved us. We clearly say it's not us, not to us, not to us belongs the glory, but to him. This is the life of the people who've been rescued. We're rescued to have his presence with us. And this is true in our individual and our corporate worship. So in chapters 25 to 27, he gives intricate details about the construction of the tabernacle. Because he says, no, my presence is going to dwell among you. That's how you're going to bring me glory, because I'm going to be with you uniquely. You're going to see and experience my presence with you always. So build this tabernacle. And listen, there's got to be lots of details. You have to understand, I'm a holy God. You're a sinful people. We can't just link up like it's nothing. Your sin's a problem. So I'm going to do something about that. I'm going to make sure you do everything necessary that you might be holy and deal with a holy God. So then the sacrifices and the tabernacle and uh, all the furniture in the tabernacle and all those details in 25 to 27 is so that a holy God can dwell with his sinful people. And then we get to chapter 28 through 31 and we find out, and even the, again, the furniture and the priest's clothing, because even the priests are sinful. So they got to make particular sacrifices that they might lead worship with God and his people and his presence among them. So they're rescued for worship. But then chapter 32 comes and what happens? Moses is getting all these instructions about worship and how this holy God will be with his people and they'll bring him glory through their worship of him. And while he's having and receiving those instructions, they turn to make a golden calf to worship. We read in Exodus chapter 32, all the people took off the rings of gold. I told you that would come back. He plundered Egypt, gave them everything they needed to be his people and to go worship. They take the very resources he gives to them in their ears and brought them to Aaron and he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So suddenly they, they're built and Moses is receiving instructions. Here's how you bring glory and honor. Here's how you get good by worshiping Yahweh according to his. While he's getting those instructions, they say, let's take the materials he's given us and let's worship a different way. They have this false worship, this idolatry. They give credit to rescue to an idol that they made. And so as we saw last week, Yahweh through Moses confronted his people. They executed both justice and mercy, revealing his holy character and distributing his just mercy and renewing the covenant because our God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and restores the covenant with his people. 
Now, chapters 35 to 40, Israel's repentant. And finally, they're going to construct the tabernacle as they were instructed to do before the golden calf. So finally, we get to the end where the tabernacle is going to be constructed, where the presence of God is going to dwell among them, where they will bring him glory by worshiping him. Yahweh rescued Israel from slavery to a new life for worship unto his glory and for their good. This is what the book of Exodus is about. Rescued from slavery for his glory. Rescued to a new life for his glory. Rescued for worship for his glory. And all of this for his people's good. Now before we learn our role on the team in that and where we finish up, I just want to make a few parallels and differences between Israel and then the church. Because again, we're talking about the people of God. And so just let me point out a couple of things. We're not going to get into too many nuances, but let me just point it out and think about even King's Cross and you and your role at this particular church. Number one, the church has been rescued from bondage. Not in Egypt, but to sin. We've been rescued, if you're a Christian, from the bondage of sin. Paul connects these dots. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. When you became a Christian, you were set free from the bondage of sin. Not from the bondage of Egypt, but from the bondage of sin, which is what the bondage in Egypt is even pointing to, God's ability to rescue Secondly, the church has been rescued to live a new life. Not uh, with with, uh, the law written on tablets, but with the law written on our very hearts. So we've got a new life that we live. We walk with God in a new way. Why? Because the law is written on our hearts. Paul, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So again, we live this new life by the Holy Spirit who's written the law of God on our hearts such that now when we sin, there is this thing called conviction. It's like, oh, snap. Like, that doesn't feel and taste like it used to feel and taste. Like, there's something negative about this situation because the law of God's now written on our hearts. So rescued from slavery, rescued to a new life, but also the church has been rescued to worship. Not in the tabernacle or temple, but as the very temple of God. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 19, so then... You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So now God dwells in the world through and in his people. So the Holy Spirit dwells in us. God is not just with us. He's within us by his spirit. And now he's building his church, and we're the stones in the temple. So there's not brick and mortar. King's Cross is not the brick and mortar that built this building on 1411 Benjamin Parkway. King's Cross are the people. So if we're in this building or another building, we're the people of God, the stones of God inside this temple where the spirit of God dwells. Fourthly, the church has been rescued to glorify God through worship and witness. We're doing the same things as the people of God of Israel. Worship and witness. That's what we do. That's how we bring him glory. Peter makes this connection. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? Give me a purpose statement, Peter. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you're God's people. Once you would not received mercy, now you have received mercy. Now, there you go. I just preached 40 chapters to you. (laughs) And I want to preach the last six and look at your individual role in this greater story. So God has called 
his people to bring him glory as he gives them good by witness and worship. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for me? What does it look like even for King's Cross? Now, I'm not going to exposit chapters 25 to 31 in, in detail, all right? So one, we don't have enough time left. Two, you don't want it because we've already covered almost all of the details in chapters 25 to 31. So all that we see in chapter 35 to 40 is they're obeying what was instructed in chapters um, 25 to 31. So most of it is just repeating stuff that you've already heard. So if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back and watch the sermon on chapters 25 to 27 by Nate Aiken who came, and then the one I did after that uh, on 28 to 31. So we're going to go and just kind of peer in at a couple different things and look at your particular role in this particular purpose. So secondly, your role in the ultimate purpose Use your talents and treasures for the good of the team, that is the church, and the glory of God. Here's your role. Use your talents and treasures for the good of the team and the glory of God. So again, if you want to flip in your Bibles now, chapters 35, I'm just going to kind of summarize the contents and show it, point it out to you. The headings in your Bible will, will do that very well, and, and then we'll point out a couple of specific applications for the rest of our time together this morning. First, chapter 35 Verse 1 through 3, you notice there's a reestablishment of the importance of the Sabbath. So they're to work, they're to construct the tabernacle, but they're to work and to worship in the way God has told them to work and to worship. They're to remember we rest in the finished work of God in creation and in redemption. He's the one who's done the work. He calls us to rest. So they start there. Now, this is very interesting, primarily because it's a picture of restoration of the covenant. So again, if we go back, think about what Moses was pleading last week. Lord, please restore the whole covenant, not just forgive us. Remember, God said, you can go to the promised land. I'm not going to go with you. Moses is like, no, please, you got to go with, with us. We want the whole covenant restored. Well, what happened earlier in Exodus? In Exodus 23, there were specific commands about the Sabbath. Then Yahweh gave the commands about the tabernacle being built. So first Sabbath, then the tabernacle. Now, at this point, the tabernacle is going to be built, but first Sabbath is mentioned again. So what is he doing? He's saying, I know the golden calf happened. I know you rebelled, but listen, we're right back to Exodus 31. It's as if Exodus 32 didn't happen. We're starting with Sabbath, and we're going into the tabernacle, as if Exodus 32 didn't even happen because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Things are back to where they're supposed to be. Now Moses interceded. This is happening. This is where we're at. And even from that, as God's people, we need to understand that our God is a redeemer. He's able to redeem even the worst of sinners from the worst of sins. The golden calf is wicked and evil, and he's saying, no, no, you're fully restored, and I'm not going to hold this over your head. And every single time you sin, bring up that old one and say, yeah, but remember what you did. Like, no, he's restoring back to the covenant. Sabbath, rest. You can rest in me. I will give you rest. And then you work as I call you to work. Second, if you continue to flip through chapters 35, 4, all the way to the end of 36, we see instructions are given for material and skillful contributions on the tabernacle, and then the construction begins. Third, they fill up the tabernacle, chapter 37, 1 through 9, the, uh, with, uh, with the ark, with the table, 10 through 16, the lampstand, 17 to 24, the altar of incense, 25 to 29, the altar of burnt offerings, 38, 1 through 7, the bronze basin, 38, 8, the court, 9 to 20, and then 38 concludes with a record of the materials used in verse 21 to 31. Fourthly, the priestly, priestly garments are made as recorded in chapters 39, or in chapter 39, and then in chapter 40. The tabernacle is erected and anointed as the Lord commanded, and we see that in 1 through 33. Finally, the book ends with the text we had read, with the glory of the Lord covering the tent of meeting, filling the tabernacle, and being the means by which Yahweh would dwell with and direct the steps of Israel. So what do we learn from it? 
What do we learn from the construction of the tabernacle as we see in 35 through 40? Seeing the big picture of Exodus, that was our first point. Seeing the big picture of 35 through 40, that's the first part of our second point. What then is your particular role and how should you respond as a player on this team for the glory of God and the advance of his purposes? What's your individual role since God has rescued you from your sin? Number one, your role is to demonstrate joyful generosity with your treasures and your talents. Your role on this team as God gets glory from his people and gives his good is to demonstrate joyful generosity with your treasures and your talents. Friends, a heart that is, understands what it's been rescued from, what it's been rescued to, and what it's been rescued for is a heart that doesn't have to be compelled to be all in. Like if you understand gospel, I don't have to talk you into using everything you have to proclaim gospel. If you're not all in, you're not understanding gospel. If you don't understand what you've been rescued from, what you've been rescued to, what you've been rescued for, you won't live the way you're supposed to live. But if you do understand what you've been rescued from, rescued to, and rescued for, you will say, I want to be all in. Just instruct me on how to do that. Just show me how to do it. Because I'm in. My heart is there. My heart is ready to serve this God who would rescue a sinner like me. To serve a God who would bring me into a new life so I don't have to live in the bondage of sin. To serve a God who would put me along his people that we might proclaim his great excellencies in the world, witnessing and worshiping to his name. So you just need to see really there are two evidences that your heart's all in for the good of the people and the glory of God. Joyful generosity with your treasures and joyful generosity with your talents. Look back at chapter 35 where Moses is getting the necessary contributions ready for the tabernacle. Exodus 35 verse 4. Moses said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, this thing that the Lord has commanded, take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution. Gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, goat's hair, tan ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and the fragrant incense and onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece. So notice he says, okay, those whose hearts are stirred by being rescued, bring what you have for the construction of the temple. Bring it, bring it in. Bring all the materials needed. Because again, Yahweh gave them all the materials needed from Egypt. So he knows they have it. He's already rescued them and sent them with what they need. So understanding you've been rescued from the bondage of sin to a new life of worship and witness for the glory of God leads to a joyful generosity. God's given you all that you need. There to now freely bring and contribute to the tabernacle. And friends, every single dollar you own was given to you by God. Every single resource you have is a gift to you given by the Lord. And he calls you to be willing to be joyful to contribute to his kingdom. Now, so just, let's just point out very clearly how you use your money and resources reveals who you worship or what you worship. So if you really want to know, like, who do I worship or what do I worship, who do you most joyfully, easily give to? Like joyful generosity. This is not a compelling. This is not a twisting of arm. This is not a manipulating with some kind of sales pitch. This is a, if you've been rescued, you love him and you want other people to know his love. So you joyfully give. You don't have to be compelled. You connect those dots. You, your, your joyful spending reveals what you worship. So what do you most easily spend your money on? Like, what does nobody have to talk you into with your resources? Like, it just makes you happy to spend that money, to write that check. Now, some of you are like, hey, it don't make me happy to write no checks. Well, amen. May the Lord give you a heart that makes you generous. <laughs> 
But just think about it, man. What is it? It's just, I don't even have to think about it. I'm happy to spend my resources on those things. Joyful generosity is an act of worship. Is it God? Or is it your comfort? You're willing to spend money easily to be comfortable? Perhaps you're willing to spend money joyfully for your security, your entertainment, your control? Or is it to your Redeemer? You want people to know Him. So you'll happily pay for a meal for a stranger to come in your home and have a meal and hear about the goodness of God. Now, I'm not saying you got to give every single dime to the church or to a missionary or to a kingdom venture. But every single dime should be joyfully used for the good of his people and the glory of God. Even when that's you and your own family. God gives good gifts. It's right to enjoy other things. It's right to enjoy a good meal together. So it's right to spend money on that to the glory of God, not to the glory of the meal. It's right to plan and think through and study the book of Proverbs and think about the future and savings and wisdom and do that to the glory of God, not to the glory of I've got control and now I'm safe. So again, I'm not saying every single dime needs to go to a particular clear Christian mission. I'm saying you ought to think about your whole life as a Christian mission. So every single dime you use is his for the good of his people and for the glory of God. This is what we're called to. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. But it's not just the treasures they're bringing for the construction of the temple, it's also their talents. Rescued people are to, to, to be joyfully generous with their resources, but also with the gifts and skills and talents God has given to them. Look at Exodus chapter 35, verse 10. Let every skillful craftsman among you come and make all that the Lord has commanded. And then the rest of the chapter, you're seeing like they, they do that very thing. Skip down to verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord is called by the name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the, of the tribe of Judah. And he's filled him with the Spirit of God, with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting stones for setting and carving wood for work in every skilled craft. In chapter 36, verse 1, Bezalel, and I have no idea how to get that one out, so I'm not even going to try. And every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. God freely gives skills and gifts and talents to all of his people. And they're to be used for his great glory and the good of his people. And so you, if you came yesterday to El Clasico and you ate a cheesesteak, there is a brother using his skills to the glory of God and the good of his people. I promise. <laughs> and so that, to understand, no, no, you, like God has given you, like notice what's in here. There's art in here. There's practical instruction in here. God, the Spirit fills us up with particular gifts so that the team flourishes. So everybody can't have the same gift or the team will be whack. <laughs> no, we need all kinds of different gifts for the purposes of God. So then every single gift is a significant gift. So you might be like, oh man, I don't have those gifts. But what gifts do you have? Those are the ones God has given you to use for his glory and for the good of his people. And what this does is it dignifies and it says every single person matters. Every stone in the temple he's building matters. Every gift that he distributes is for his great glory. So not one gift has a better purpose than the other. Every single gift has the same purpose, the glory of God and the good of his people. So they're all equally valuable and precious and worth. And, and here's the thing. If you're holding out, the church can't be what the church is supposed to be because you're holding out. God has given you these gifts to use. Our joyful generosity must serve the good of the team and the glory of God. Don't you long, don't you find in your heart 
a longing to be a part of a team where everybody's all in, everybody's using their resources and their talents, and nobody's competing, nobody's trying to say, am I better than this person? Like, everybody's all in on the same purpose, on the same team with great unity, and there's great joy. Don't you, don't you long for that? Don't you long for what we read in Exodus 35, verse 20? Look at this. Then all the congregation of the people of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, everyone whose heart stirred him, everyone whose spirit moved him, and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. So they came, both men and women, all who were of a willing heart, brought brooches and earrings and signets and rings and armlets, all sorts of gold objects, every man dedicating an offering of gold to the Lord. And everyone who possessed blue or purple or scarlet yarns or fine linen or goat's hair or tan ramskins or goatskins brought them. Everyone who could make a contribution of silver or bronze brought it as the Lord's contribution. And everyone who possessed uh, acacia wood would use uh, of any use in the work brought it. And every skillful woman spun with her hands and all brought what they had spun in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine linen. All the women whose hearts stirred them to use their skills spun the goat's hair. And the leaders brought onyx stones and stones to be set for the ephod, for the breastpiece and spices, for the oil and light and for the anointing oil and the fragrant incense. All the men and women, the people of Israel, whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work of the Lord, had commanded by Moses to be done, brought it as a freewill offering to the Lord. Everybody, men and women. What do I have to bring to the Lord? I'm bringing it. What do I have to use to serve for his great glory and the good of his people and to bless this broken world? God, all of that I have is yours to use for your purposes. The question is not, do you have it or do you do it? The question is, what does your sacrificial honor, uh, offerings bring glory and honor to? You are making sacrificial offerings. It's just who, does those, who do those offerings bring glory and honor to? You're doing it. You're using your talents for somebody's glory. You're using your talents for something's glory. You're using your resources for somebody's glory and something's glory. It's just who? You're a worshiper. You can't help it. You will worship. And worship is revealed by freely giving, sacrificially, of your talents and treasures. Who has your highest allegiance? Whose name do you most naturally celebrate and honor? What are you most willing to contribute to? What do you most joyfully serve? Who or what are your talents or treasures glorifying? Repentant Israel was so joyful and committed to glorifying the one who'd rescued them and even forgiven them and restored them from the golden calf incident that we read in 36.5. The people bring much, the, 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 the men working on it come to Moses and say, the people bring much more than enough for doing the work the Lord has commanded us to do. He's like, look, the whole squad is so in, we got more than we need. The whole team is all in such that we got more resources and talent than we know what to do with. So what then right now if you realize you've been selfish, even idolatrous with your treasures or talents? What do you do if you've been holding out and hoarding your talents and treasures rather than being joyfully generous with them? Well, friends, you repent. Paul says in Romans 2.4, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Friends, we don't beat each other up to get repentance. God's kindness leads you to repentance. Seeing, oh, no, no, I need to be reminded what he rescued me from. I need to be reminded what he rescued me to. I need to be reminded what he rescued me for. And I need to be reminded who he rescued me with. Oh, Lord, I want to repent. His kindness leads to repentance. We don't beat each other up with the law. That, is, that might produce some kind of outward conformity, but not an inward transformation. The heart is transformed by grace. 
And so grace and a reminder of we've been rescued says, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. And we honestly would confess our sins. I've been selfish. I've been greedy with my time, with my talent, with my treasures. I've been serving myself or these idols. I'm sorry. I confess that sin. It's wicked. It's evil. But I turn to you. Here's my life. Do as you wish. What would you have me to do? You know your heart's all in when you see your unique talents and treasures as means of worship witness with the people of God. Thirdly, you obey God's word in a twisted world. You obey God's word in a twisted world. Now, if you sit and read 39 to 40 out loud, you're going to see a clear emphasis over and over and over is obedience to God's word. So the, word you'll, the phrase you'll read over and over and over, chapters 39 and 40, as the Lord commanded Moses. So you'll read a bunch of stuff he did, and you'll read as the Lord commanded Moses. A bunch of stuff he did, as the Lord commanded Moses. So in chapter 39, verse 5, 7, 21, 26, 29, 31, 32, 42, and 43. Chapter 40, verse 16, 19, 21, 23, 25, 27, 29, 32 of chapter 40. Do you think he wants us to understand? No, no. You worship according to my word. You obey my word. If we're to enjoy the presence of God, we must be willing to worship God as he taught us in his word. We're not free to worship him any old way we want to. We worship him as he's revealed himself in his word. This is the key to being a witness he's called us to be and to bringing him glory. We see a great illustration of this yesterday or over the last few days as the Oklahoma girls softball team won again, I think the third national championship in a row, and I think they lost one game this year, dominated. They were on ESPN. They get an interview question, ask them, and the, the interviewer kind of says on ESPN, like, so how do you keep the joy of it all, not be anxious about keeping the streak going and this, that, and the other? And literally one of the girls are like, whoa, what's about? Like, joy doesn't come from softball. It comes from Christ. So she goes and just shares the gospel and eternal joy in Christ, and the next, like, two or three girls do the exact same thing. <laughs> the ESPN reporter's like, ah, that's not what I was looking for. <laughs> like, I would imagine... <laughs> But these girls just demonstrate, no, 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 we understand this, like worship's according to his word. Satisfaction and eternal joy is not based on these national championships, it's based on Christ. And so if we're going to worship and bring him glory, he's got to be our chief allegiance and with his people. And in these moments, we're unashamed of the gospel. And so we proclaim gospel. And no matter what that gets us in the world, we proclaim gospel. I want to point you to one resource from one of our members in this as well. Um, I don't know if, if, Colin, if you've got a link, if you could put that up. If not, that's fine. Uh, but one of our members, Cami Hodge, has written a book uh, on kind of an exegetical approach to what the Bible says about homosexuality. And Cami's done an incredible job kind of researching and studying and giving an argument for how do we think about this biblically. And in Pride Month, I think it would be helpful as Christians to know, God, what does the Bible say about these conversations and how can I rightly love and be compassionate and yet be commi- committed and convicted with truth? As, as culture is shifting on these things, what does it look like to stay people of conviction, not shifting based on culture, but also people of compassion, knowing how to represent what we believe with compassion? And so we'll just commend to you. I'll have Colin send that out. If you're on our email list, you'll get that resource sent to you. It's a free PDF of a book she's written. She's done incredible work on uh, in that. We would be happy for you. But in the midst of us, it's like we must do as God's commanded. In a twisted world, we must obey his word. This is what we have to do. We do that with compassion and with conviction. Lastly, your job, your role, is to enjoy God's presence and leadership. So you're to enjoy his presence and his leadership. Again, the book ends, verse 34 to 38, revealing the the glory of God coming down on the temple. We read in verse 34, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out till the day it was taken up. 
For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was on it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. The whole point of it all happens. The glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. The whole point of it all, God's glory through his goodness to his people and then through them to a lost and dying world. God always makes a way to dwell with his people for their good and his glory. He always makes sure the work is completed. And it's only completed when his presence dwells with us. I want you to notice the glory of the Lord's in the tabernacle in the midst of the people. Remember where it was last week when Moses was in the tent of meeting and they would come to their door and they would look outside the camp where Moses was meeting with the glory of the Lord, kind of peering and looking at him outside. Now it's in their midst. He's not distant and removed. The covenant's been restored. God is in their midst. The presence of God is with the people. It's there. He's done what he's promised he would do. His presence is with his people. He's in their midst. He's not just with Moses, but he's with the whole squad. He's with the whole team. But also notice verse 35, not even Moses can enter the tent when the cloud is settled on it. Remember Yahweh's warning last week. You can't see my face and live. He's too holy. Even the great Moses can't go into the tent, the tabernacle, when his presence is dwelling there. Now, the sacrificial system in Leviticus comes up next in Israel's history. That's how a lot of this would be resolved then. But climactically, we understand how we're in the presence of God. We understand the Lord Jesus said it's finished, that he finished the work that was necessary for sinful people to dwell with the Holy God, that he died on Calvary's cross for our sin so that he could clear our debt, and he gave us his very righteousness so that we'd be righteous enough to enter his holy presence so that Paul could say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for God who said let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Moses, you can't see my face and live. Those who are in Christ, you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We know he's done everything necessary to bring us in his presence forever. We know he promised to build his church, his body, his temple, and his Holy Spirit would dwell in all who belong to him. And we know that he will lead us and guide us, not with a cloud of fire, but by his very spirit dwelling, not just with us, but within us. And where will he guide us to? Remember what Jesus said, John 14, 3? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He says, no, no, no. I'm ascending, and it's to your good that I ascend. I'm going to send the helper, the spirit to dwell within you, and the helper is going to make sure you get to me. Where I am, you'll be with me. I'm going to prepare a place for you that we might be together forever, our God with his people. Paul says, for now I see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. Rescued people are those whom God's presence dwells among, by his spirit in each individual and corporately in his church. But there is a day coming when we won't just see him by faith dimly in a mirror, but we really will see him face to face. In that new Eden, that restored world where we're with him, where there's no more suffering and sin and sorrow and difficulty and fights and temptations to idolatry, but with our God, we his people. God's glory and presence with his rescued people forever. Now I want to conclude, again, just by saying there's a, there's a, there's a wrong way to read the book of Exodus in a man-centered way, an anthropocentric way, that says, look, let me read this book and make it all about my earthly prosperity and getting out of earthly troubles. That's not what this book is about. This book is about eternal prosperity. 
This book is saying, no, my God, it's right to pray. He is powerful. He can deliver. He can redeem. He can get you out of earthly sorrows. But he's promised to do everything necessary. And the whole point of this book is you would understand and long, his presence is my good. I want to be with him forever. And he's done everything necessary in Christ to accomplish that. So whether I get out of these earthly sorrows and difficulties or not, I have eternal joy ahead of me. I have endless praise with my God face to face and with his people. The main point is God's glory, not your own. That's why the Lord Jesus himself even said, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Because there you'll be with God, you'll be his people, you'll be with him forever. So non-Christian friends, we say, repent and believe and join this team even today. By faith, how do you enter this? By faith, trust in Christ. Talk to a Christian who brought you, ask questions. All the pastors will be happy to talk to you. Christians, demonstrate joyful generosity with your treasures and talents. Obey God's word in a twisted world. And enjoy worshiping in God's presence, in part now, but in endless praise forever. King's Cross, our desire is to reproduce this over and over and over. As the Lord gives us great grace to plant churches where people would live like this. Understanding with great gratitude, this is what I've been rescued from. Obeying God by, the, by his grace and according to the power of his spirit, following his word. And worshiping him and witnessing to his great glory and his great grace. So I hope to just do that by planting churches. We're also, we just ask that you would pray for us. So right now, things are fine. Everybody's on vacation. 40 or 50 college students are out of town. A bunch of our staff are out of town. In September, it's going to be too full. And so just pray for us. We're not going to go to multiple services. We believe this is one family. We want to be together. And so pray for wisdom on what we ought to do. Because how we worship is important. And we demonstrate to a watching world. So pray even that we would be the kind of people that put on display the great glory of God, even in giving his goodness to his people. Let's close in prayer. Father.